Radio Mano Papachango. Boys and girls, this is Uncle Chris, your podcast host for this afternoon, this morning, this evening, or tonight, or today. I don't know. Whatever time it is there, that's what time it is. And the guest this week is Jana Vangelova, who is from Macedonia originally, uh, came to the U.S., I think she said in high school, maybe, or maybe for university. Uh, has a PhD in psychology from the great Cornell University in upstate New York. I've spent many happy times at Cornell. When I was at Hobart as an undergrad, my best friend went to Cornell. I used to hitchhike down there all the time. Lived in Trumansburg for a while, which is sort of halfway between Geneva and Ithaca. If you know the Finger Lakes, you know what I'm talking about. There was a restaurant called the Rungovian Embassy I used to wander into coming down from LSD trips that I was on in that area sometimes. Um, Yeah, lots of good memories. Some beautiful parks around there. Gorgeous, 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 gorgeous. Um, Yeah, anyway, so uh, Jana is a fascinating person. She focused, I guess, her research dissertation and and a lot of what she's doing now where she teaches at NYU in New York is uh, focused on how people experience casual sex. So the question of how casual sex fits into our nature as a species, into uh, our psychological repertoire as individuals in the modern world into uh, relationships and uh, so on and so forth. I imagine if I know you, I imagine that you're probably kind of interested in casual sex. I think the audience for this podcast is probably skews toward a favorable view of casual sex, at least in terms of uh, in theory. I don't know in practice, but uh, I'm guessing you're probably interested in this subject. And uh, particularly from a woman's perspective and a woman who really knows the, the data, the research, the literature, and has done uh, her own research. So, Jana, very interesting. I'm doing a workshop with her, actually, in a few weeks in Austin, Texas at the South by Southwest Conference. So if you're going to be at that conference, it's, I think it's I've never been to the conference before. I know it sort of is a tech conference in a lot of ways. Uh, one of the biggest in the country, but there's also a lot of interesting music and art that goes on there. So when they asked me to come and give a talk in exchange for a platinum pass, hell yeah, for Casilda and me, I thought, why the hell not? And we're going to be on the road in that area anyway. So we sort of built our schedule around uh, being there. So we'll be there. I think the talk is on the 10th or the 12th. I'm not sure. There's a dinner. I think there's a dinner the 10th I have to be there for. And then the talk is on the 12th. In any case, if you're going to South by Southwest, just look on your app and you'll see me listed there as one of the speakers and all the information will be there. Come and say hi. 
We're going to be talking about uh, non-conventional, well, I guess, what's the word? Uh, C, consensual non-monogamy, CNM. That's that's the catchphrase these days, Con- consensual non-monogamy. So it doesn't mean cheating, running around lying. It means working things out, trying to have your cake and eat it too, as it were. Trying to have your cake and go down on it too. So, uh, speaking of consensual non-monogamy, I did a Patreon-only Roma episode last night. I'm calling that Proma, as you knew I would. So those of you who are Patreon supporters should have received uh, a link or a, a, an alert, or I don't know how they, they distribute those things, but... Uh, I put that up. That's on Patreon. Those of you who are not Patreon supporters, sorry, you're out of luck. I have to do something special for those beautiful Patreon people. So um, most of the questions were about relationships, about uh, non-monogamy. I think there was one about how to sort of balance the the urge to travel and see the world versus uh, buckle down and really study and make an impact by uh, becoming an expert. Um, I don't know why people like those episodes, honestly, because it feels to me like I keep getting the same questions over and over again. Uh, You know, we choose representative questions, so it's not like we're always choosing the same ones, but I think people are confronting the same issues in their lives. And um, I don't know. I think I keep giving the same advice. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm learning. Maybe my advice is getting better. I don't know. But in any case, that's up there for the Patreon uh, supporters. And you can support with as little as a dollar a month and and you still get that stuff. Whatever bonus stuff I put up on Patreon, you will get. Um and uh So what else? That's it, I guess. Thank you for your support, whether it comes by way of Patreon or uh, PayPal donation or, um, you know, whatever, telling your friends about the podcast, ordering T-shirts from my mom through ChrisRyanPhD.com or uh, writing positive reviews on iTunes, etc. The Tangentially Reading book is available uh, for order. Those of you who didn't pre-order it can order it. It's set up now uh, through the Amazon platform. So wherever you are in the world, you can just order it through your local Amazon site and uh, and the, the shipping is not, you know, massive international shipping costs. Um, I think Misfit got kind of screwed by the uh, pre-orders because we set what we thought were reasonable shipping rates uh, in, you know, when we set up the website, then it turned out to cost a lot more to ship to most of the world. So they took a bit of a beating on that. Uh, Hopefully these orders will, uh, whatever profit we make on these will go toward repaying them for that. So in the end, it'll all come out in the wash, I guess. Um, yeah, that's a, I really enjoy that book, and it's a, it's a nice way to sort of show people what it is you like about this podcast in particular and podcasting in general, the sorts of conversations that can happen in a podcast that aren't going to happen in a seven-minute, uh, at most, news segment or you know NPR where people are watching their language. I saw a thing with Terry Gross. I love Terry Gross, by the way. She does the Fresh Air 
podcast. She's great. Really very good interviewer, knows her subjects very well. But she's, uh, you know, it's NPR, and, and Terry Gross is very, uh, what's the word? I don't want to say squeamish. She's very awkward around sexuality, and she's just a very, very good girl. It feels like she was raised by, I don't know, by Quakers or something, or nuns or something. She's just, like, so not um, familiar with any of the the dark side of life or any of the sort of criminal element. And she was talking to somebody and the name of the book was the chicken shit club. And it was, I think it's about wall street and all these guys on wall street who are just full of shit and they're ripping everybody off and they're not producing anything of value. They're just extracting value from the system, uh, they're parasites. And obviously he's not in favor of these people. So the, the title of the book expressed that through the whole interview, she referred to the book as the chicken S word club. What the fuck? It's the name of the book. The president of the country is talking about grabbing people by the pussy and you can't say chicken shit on your radio show. Give me a break. Oh, the children. What about what, what will happen with the children? Yeah. You think children have never heard chicken shit? Give me a break. Any any kid that can say 20 words, one of those words is probably shit. Because let's face it, there's a lot of shit in a kid's life. You know? Uh, anyway. Uh, I don't think I have anything else to say. The next few minutes is where ads would happen. Is where you'd hear me talking about how great Squarespace is or... Some company that'll ship food to your front door or, I don't know, underwear that holds your balls in some special way you've never felt before. I don't know. Who's sponsoring podcasts these days? I I forget. Um, But you're not going to hear any of that. This is commercial free. This is handcrafted, small batch podcasting. Brought to you from Topanga, California. Uh, future episodes are going to be coming from the road. I'm going out on the road again. Cassie and I are going to be vanthropologizing. Leaving next weekend. I think our first stop is going to be Ojai. We're going to drop in and uh, say hi to Bruce Damer. Last episode, he's going to be in Ojai. What a wonderful dude, huh? If you haven't heard that episode, make sure you check it out. He's, I've gotten a lot of really positive feedback about about all the last episodes from Steve Silberman and Johan Hari and and uh, Bruce Damer, just just such an open-hearted, brilliant man. Really happy to know him. And so we're going to cruise up to Ojai so Cassie can meet him. There's some people up there uh, working with sustainable agriculture I'd like to check in on. I'm going to write them an email as soon as I finish this. And uh, so hopefully we'll have some some conversation from Ojai. Then we're going to head down southwest. We're going to hope these, this is all, you know, remains to be seen if we can schedule all this. But I want to drop in on a guy named Dr. Dr. Joe Tarfer, who's um, a physician who co-founded um, an ayahuasca center in near Iquitos. He wrote a book called The Fellowship of the River. Very interesting uh, sort of looking at plant medicines from a physician's perspective, a scientific view of things that seem to 
exist on a in a realm beyond the reach of of medical science. Uh, and then a similar vein, hopefully we're going to stop in on uh, Andrew Weil, who is down there uh, in Tucson, I believe. He's you probably know who he is. If not, Google him. He's an amazing guy. He's been on the podcast. He was in one of the first episodes, episode one, two or three. Um, so it'd be great to check in with him again. And uh, then we're going to go down. Uh, I think we're going to go to Bisbee and see if I can get uh, Doug Stanhope to sit down and chat. Uh, it's sort of hard to reach him through email. Um, but Doug, if you're out there or if anyone knows Doug who's listening to this, tell him I'm going to come stalk him. I'm going to come stand in his driveway until he agrees to talk to me uh, with my pants off. I'm going to stand top bottomless in his driveway. I'll have a jacket on because it'll probably be chilly. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm going to do that. Then uh, then I'm not sure where we'll go. We'll probably go along the Rio Grande. I hear Big Bend National Park is pretty beautiful. And it's cold, so we'll probably stay down toward the south. Um, and then, uh, then down to New Orleans if we can make it. I'm not sure... I don't like to have real hard plans when I travel because things come up. And if we find a place that we really love, we might just sit there for two weeks. So you never know. But the sort of most ambitious plan is to get to New Orleans and then turn around, come back to Austin for South by Southwest. I'd love to see Santa Fe and Taos, but I don't know if we're going to make it. And it might be too cold and I don't want to freeze my ass off sleeping in the van. We don't really have heating in there. So... Uh, we'll probably uh, follow the weather. Anyway, that's the plan. And that's enough for me. I'm going to just slide right into this conversation with Dr. Jana Vrangalova. And I thought an appropriate song to play would be The Animal I Am by the incomparable Carsey Blanton. This is from her record, So Ferocious. Check her out at carseyblanton.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast and thanks for your support.
Accent or no discernible almost accent. No Not accent. to me, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, the Puerto Rican girl could tell. <laughs> La Puerto Rican La Puerto girl. Puerto Rican. Uh, I'm sitting in a in a plush conference room <laughs> at NYU, and my microphone is sagging. I have an impotence <laughs> issue with my microphone. You know that happens with age. Hey, hey, ageism. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how old your microphone is, but you know, it it's happens. It's small, but it's sensitive. <laughs> uh, I'm with Zana. Just like clits. What the fuck's your now name? Vranglova? Vrangalova. Vrangalova? Yes. Vrangalova. Yes. Not, okay, Vrangalova. Yep, that's pretty good. Uh, Zana is. Jana. 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 Yes. Jana is what you think of probably if you're picturing. A hyper-intelligent, sexy, Eastern European, long-legged <laughs> scientist, sex researcher, college professor. Hell yeah. I like that. Yeah. That's, I hope that's all Anytime I think of that sort of person from now on, you're what I'm going to picture. Great. Uh, I hope you think about those people often. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to turn off the mic here. <laughs> We're just getting started, and already I'm thinking about what I'm going to edit out of this. Um, so, we just met last night, mm -hmm. and we're both wearing the same clothes we were wearing last <laughs> night, but we did not spend the night together, unfortunately. No, and I at least spent the night at home. I don't know about you. I spent the night at someone else's home, but, yeah. The home for the night. Yeah, and yeah. And we still ended up somehow wearing the same clothes. What's that say about us? <laughs> That it's we're almost too like busy paying, to it's pay like attention to that. Tax without making the money. It's like it's all downside. What what is this? <laughs> anyway, I was just too busy this morning to think about a new set of clothes. Yeah. to put together. Right. Because I had an exam right. to get to. Well, you're wearing black and jeans and shoes. Yeah. Does, is that a big, mm -hmm. does that take a lot of thought? <laughs> of course it takes a lot of thought. Yeah, and you got the red glasses. Those are different. You weren't Those are those different because night. those were the closest somehow when I grabbed whatever pair of glasses was nearby. Oh, uh, okay. Right. Yeah. I really didn't have time to pay Anyway, so let's... let's irrelevant. Yeah, irrelevant. <laughs> so you're, you're uh, a very interesting person. We were on the panel together last night at the monogamish... It's not a premiere, it's a screening, uh, New York premiere, uh, film directed by our mutual friend Tal Ruspoli. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
Yeah, so I heard a lot of people talking afterwards, like, wow, that woman was really interesting. I want to look her up. And you, cool. You, you got a lot of fans last night. Yeah. So uh, tell me again, you re your research areas, you have a PhD in psychology. Yes, I have a developmental PhD or in developmental psychology right. from Cornell University. And after graduating, which was about four years ago, I came down to the city and started teaching human sexuality classes at NYU. How'd that happen? Because you just, they you're just like fuck it, I'm going to go teach human sexuality. Well, I NYU. decided, <laughs> I decided just as I was finishing my PhD that I wasn't going to go into full tenure track academia because uh. I thought that it would be more interesting for me to try and translate science to sex science to more general, broader audiences mm. instead of being locked up in the ivory tower and only doing research. That one of the reasons. There are a few other reasons why I didn't pursue that career. A big part being I didn't really want to be a tenure track professor in, I don't know, Iowa or somewhere. I, and it's not just Iowa. Most most states <laughs> I would yeah. rather not be. So I really wanted to be in New York City and kind of being um, in that world of sex education beyond just the academic world. So <clears throat> I ended up teaching here because they didn't have a human sexuality class at the psych department at NYU. What? And, yeah, they hadn't had one for many, many years. All and they these decided, impressionable young students? I know. I was like, nobody is molding their minds and yeah. uh, with all this amazing sex info that we have these yeah. days. So I was very fortunate that the department decided they would like somebody teaching a human sexuality class. And so, so you that's pitched the program did. to them? Kind of. Oh, yeah, I mean, I knew cool. some professors at the department already, and, right. and they seemed like they would be interested, or they thought the department would be interested. I pitched the idea, they said yes, and so I've been teaching a general human sexuality class. Mm -hmm. I've taught a more specific class on sexual orientation, so homosexuality, bisexuality, and so on. And then I just found out that they approved a new class that I'm going to teach next semester, and that's the psychology of casual sex. The psychology of casual sex. Yes, and that's actually my own research. That's what I do research on. So casual sex, right. promiscuity, non-monogamous relationships, and sexual orientation. Those are my topics of, of research during my dissertation and afterwards. Where have you been all my life? <laughs> and that's exactly... In Macedonia first, yeah, then upstate New York, true. and now in New York. Actually, but that's not all my life. That's <laughs> like the last 24 years. Right, and of my before life, that, yeah. I hadn't been born. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That'll happen. <laughs> that, unfortunately, that's becoming the answer more and more, you know? Well, the first 30 years of your life, I didn't exist. Yeah. Um, so, okay, what's your take on, I mean, do you, do you go into this with an agenda? Are you, are you like um, an anti casual sex warrior? Are you running around <laughs> warning people about the dangers of. God, having no. sex with friends or strangers? <laughs> Absolutely not. I. It doesn't rot your soul. It does definitely does not rot your soul. Mm. Rot your soul, or at least it doesn't have to. So my agenda is that there is no one thing, one kind of sexual expression that is true or healthy or right for everybody. Mm. That whether something sexual is good for you or not depends on who you are, how you do it, how you go about it, who are the people around you, and, and so on. And that's kind of what has driven my casual sex research, uh, my ca uh, non-monogamy research, sexual into anything else, really. And I think that the not just my agenda, but also the scientific evidence that I've collected and other people have collected on these topics shows that casual sex, if we take that as an example, can be an amazing thing for some people. And for other people, it can be a pretty horrible thing. And for other people, yet, it can be a thing that doesn't really impact their 
lives in any way uh, in right. particular. So there's a variety of, of effects or responses people have to that kind of uh, casual sexual experience. Do you think that the, do those different types of experiences cluster into male, female, gender orientation? I mean, do, do for example, the, so the standard narrative would hold that casual sex is great for men and terrible for women because sex is seen as this thing that's taken from women or mm -hmm. given by women to men, that's right. this a directional thing. Uh, do you find there's any evidence for that? So we do find evidence that on average, men seem to show more positive reactions to casual sex than women and fewer negative reactions to casual sex than women do. And also that they may, as a group on average, have somewhat more mental health benefits or social benefits than women do. However, that's not to say that no women ever get any benefits or have positive reactions. In fact, we find that even within women, most women who have casual sex enjoy their experiences. They report more positive reactions than negative reactions. And overall, it doesn't seem like there is one pattern of influence of casual sex on women. So most studies find non-significant results when you look at, let's say, casual sex experiences and self-esteem or depression or anxiety or life satisfaction. If you follow people over time and you... Uh, measure how much casual sex they're having and you control for their initial levels of depression, anxiety, life satisfaction, self-esteem, you find that overall casual sex doesn't seem to lead to more or less of any of these things. But then when you break the people, both men and women, when you break them into other types of groups, for example, if you look at their motivation, why they're doing this, mm. that's when you see the differences. So when people have casual sex for for the good reasons, for the healthy reasons. What are the good reasons? Because you're horny, because you're really attracted to this person, because you really want to have sex, and, and you would be having sex even if this were, was not going to lead to a long-term relationship. Then, Or maybe you want to explore, you want to learn something new, you think right. this is an important experience to have in life. Right. So those are all pretty good, we call them autonomous reasons to do something, not just sex, to do anything. And there's plenty of research out there finding that when people do things for autonomous reasons, their well-being flourishes. Mm. They're more effective at what they do, they're better at it, they enjoy it more, and they actually have these positive mental health outcomes from that. Mm. When people do anything, including casual sex, for bad reasons, in the context of casual sex, those would be things like, I got drunk, or I got peer pressured into it because everybody else is doing it, or I was afraid the partner wasn't going to take no for an answer, or they were going to mm. leave me, or they were uh, going to get... I don't know, sad or angry or uh, something like that. I want that. him to like me. I want him to like me. Or I want I'm, him to make someone else jealous. Exactly. Right. Or I'm hoping it would lead to a long-term relationship right. and that's why I'm doing right. it. So when people were doing it for that reason, for those sets of reasons, right. then their well-being wasn't really doing so well. Right. They, yeah. So, and that's true of men and women. Right. So men might be more likely to do it or somewhat more likely to do it for the good reasons than women are. Mm. But when they do it for the wrong reasons, their well-being suffers just as much as women's well-being suffers. And, and I don't know if this is even possible to tease out to what extent cultural expectations and judgments mm, skew those results, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we, you know, we're saying that uh, women who engage in casual sex for what we're calling the good reasons that are related to self-actualization, autonomy, and all that, 
have positive outcomes, but still, even you know, in, in Iowa, for example, mm -hmm. lots of parts of the U.S., if it becomes public knowledge that a woman slept with you know thirty right. guys, suddenly you know she's a slut, a slut, mm -hmm. and then there will be negative effects, even if they're not uh, organic, or I'm not sure what the word is, even if they're not really related to her experience of, of the sex. It's Absolutely. about other people judging her. Absolutely. So some of the factors that determine whether casual sex is going to have positive or negative influences on you, and it's not just casual sex. I think of any kind of non-traditional sexual expression, so non-monogamous relationship, mm. kinky sex, right. you know, any kind of sex, right. non-heterosexual sex, any kind of sex that might be outside of the masturbating confines. with your left hand. Oh yeah, that's that's a really that's bad one. The devil's yeah, hand. Yeah, that's the worst. <laughs> so anything that falls outside of the yeah, norm, yeah. it really matters how others perceive you. So the right. social approval or disapproval can have a really bad or really good impact on you. And there is some research finding that, for example, in environments where they're more liberal sexual norms, having high numbers of sexual partners is related to higher self-esteem mm -hmm. in both men and women right. compared to people who have fewer sexual partners. In more conservative environments, having a lot of sexual partners is correlated with low self-esteem or lower self-esteem, especially for the women. Right. So women tend to be, because their sexuality is more repressed or more controlled by the society, and also they tend to be a little more affected by what societies kind of tend to want them to do mm. or expect them to do. Yeah. So their well-being can depend even more on what society thinks they should be or shouldn't be doing than yeah. men's well-being. So yeah, we do yeah. have some of that data. And we also have data in terms of how much culture affects your basic desire to have mm. casual sex. So one of the things that drives why some people are having a lot of it and some people aren't having a lot of it is because our biologies are different. You know, some people have higher sex drives, some people have higher sex, uh, sexual novelty need, yeah. right? more sensation-seeking, greater boredom susceptibility. Do you think that that correlates to other things? Like if somebody's really into Thai food one night in Ethiopia mm -hmm. and the next night, are they more likely to be into casual sex? <laughs> Probably. I don't necessarily think don't it's a very women high who, I don't trust women who don't like Thai food. I got to tell you. <laughs> right now, a woman's like, no, I just want burgers and fries every night. I'm like, sorry, baby. Well, that means this you're not compatible happen. with someone We're who's not, not willing to Or someone who doesn't have a passport, doesn't like to travel. Mm -hmm. Really? But for a lot of people, that's perfectly fine, right? That's If they like to eat uh, burgers yeah. and fries every day and they want a partner who wants the same and they don't care about traveling, then great. By Good all means, them. go find yeah. each other and yeah. be perfectly happy doing right. those kinds of things. But yes, I think there is something in our genetic code that determines to what extent we're going to find new experiences rewarding. Mm and how easily we're going to get bored with right. kind of having the same set of experiences, whether sexual or non-sexual. So to some extent, how much casual sex we want is going to be determined by some of these basic biological differences, but certainly our environments play a big role as well. Mm. So we have data from about 50 different countries in the world, and the more egalitarian a country is in terms of gender roles. So the more women have access to economic resources, political power, sexual health services, health services in general, birth control, and those kinds of things, uh, the smaller the difference in yeah. gender difference in how much casual sex they want. 
So across cultures, you have men always reporting more casual sex desire than women do, but in places like Denmark, right. for example, that difference between men and women is actually quite small. Mm. Whereas in countries like Pakistan, that difference is going to be much larger. Interesting, yeah. right? And that, you know, I, I love that kind of data because at least in my cherry-picking head, that uh, corresponds to hunter-gatherer societies where women have equal autonomy, equal mm -hmm. access to resources, don't have to worry about childcare, don't have to have a man to take care of them because everybody takes care of everybody. So I look at Scandinavian countries and say that's the closest thing mm -hmm. we have mm -hmm. to a hunter-gatherer social norm. And so in the we find world, in the yeah. modern world, and we find exactly what you reported: women are nearly or as. Uh, open and interested in sexual relationships as men are. Yeah, and in fact, if you think about some of these things that distinguish a place like Sweden and a place like you know, Pakistan or even the United States, are these things that have made casual sex an evolutionary luxury for women? Because the reason why you can argue to some extent casual sex is not as um, uh, desirable by women has to do to some extent with the evolutionary d different um, different costs that mm. pregnancy can have. Right. So if you have a culture where you have to spend a lot of time taking care of children and two years of breastfeeding and then a lot of lot more years of taking care of these children, you are gonna be a little more picky about who you sure. end up having sex with. But if sex does not end in pregnancy, every time you have sex because you have very reliable access to birth control and you have a lot of help with taking care of those children that do end up uh, happening, then you all of a sudden have freedom to mm. want these things and to not think right. of casual sex as carrying as high costs as it would in some other cultures. Do you think beyond those sort of uh, cultural considerations and the, and the biological considerations around pregnancy, do you think that there is uh, an experiential difference uh, that carries over into behavior in the sense that when a woman is having sex with a man, it's happening inside her body, hmm. whereas for a man, it's happening inside her body. So there's this... Well, I don't know. Depends on how you have sex. Well, I'm talking so about I mean. conventional, church-approved, you know, <laughs> <laughs> church oh, church missionary. Okay. Visit. I mean, because you know there are these yeah. things called strap-ons, yeah, and you can flip things around, yeah, flip pegging. them around, yeah. Mm -hmm. But there was no like evolutionary pegging, I don't think. Hunter-gatherers <laughs> <laughs> don't no, report they do a pegging, lot of pegging no activity. <laughs> no, among the Kung San, there's no reports of pegging in the Kalahari. Um, which actually gets into an interesting question of, uh, which I've been thinking about for years, kink. Like in the report, I've you know read a lot of, there aren't a lot, but all the, of the reports there are on sexual behavior of hunter-gatherers, I think I've read them all. And there's very little information about any sort of kink. Mm. Any, even blowjob, even oral sex mm -hmm. is like unheard of in most hunter-gatherer groups. And these are groups that aren't, sex negative so you know people the anthropologists ask them about it and they just like they just we just don't know what you're talking about mm. you know like why would I put that like in my mouth are you kidding me <laughs> and uh, you know I eat with this thing get it out of here um, and also homosexual behavior mm. there in North American cultures there there are reports of third sex people and you know there's um, the there was, was the Burdash, uh, I think, but it's not Bidash, used anymore, yeah, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. the French term, um, which I guess is insulting, so they call them two-spirit ones mm -hmm. and all that. 
Um, but even in those cases, it, that's more of a transsexual rather than right. a homosexual thing. So the person born in the man's body who decides she's actually a woman, the people just say, okay, she's a woman. She has a woman's spirit. She has the man's body, but those she's a woman. usually are really third genders because everybody in those societies doesn't necessarily see these people as women the same way they see you know, what we would call cisgender women. They usually usually in these societies get a third gender status. Well, I mean, in the South Pacific they do, uh, and mm -hmm. the islands I've read about, but in the most of the North American tribes that I've mm -hmm. read about, and again, I'm not a great expert on this, but uh, a woman, a, a, a person who identifies as a woman doesn't do male things. They, they do right, the girl right. things, mm -hmm. they hang out with the girls, they become a woman, and they, they marry. And the man who marries one of those women is not seen as strange at right. all. They're considered heterosexual. Right, exactly. It's so it's, yeah, yeah. And, you know, she's a good cook and she can carry a lot of weight and she works hard and, like, you know, mm -hmm. good for you, man. You, mm -hmm. you know, you hit the jackpot. <laughs> the fact that she has a dick doesn't seem to be an issue. I don't know. In some cultures, in yeah. Some There's cult a yeah. lot of cultural yeah. diversity in that regard. Yeah, there yeah. is, yeah. And there has been homosexual behavior, certainly, but you're right about kink, and we don't quite know whether that's because nobody really talked about these things and it, well that's it you've got these sex negative anthropologists right. who've been afraid Coming to even in, ask yeah. until the last 15 years or so and by then yeah. many of the cultures have changed they've because had of missionaries for years exactly right so we but, don't but know what, okay but what about this do you think that kink only exists in the presence of repression there are theories saying that that kink is basically sexual desire trying to find a way to get out when right. you don't have the standard. The clear path kind of, is blocked. Yeah. Right. The clear path is blocked because of religion, because of sex negativity, and then it finds other ways. Unfortunately, that's something that we need, I mean, data. And yeah. we don't necessarily have very good data because... And how would you get it? At this point, it would be almost impossible to get it. Yeah. We would have needed very good anthropological accounts. Right of these indigenous peoples before we ruin them or we change them. Um, In my, my sort of vision of prehistory, which is, you know, conjectural as far as this goes, but not totally conjectural, I think there was a lot of uh, group sex, mm. which we kind of consider kink. Uh, there's certainly sperm competition, mm -hmm, you know. To some extent, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, people are sitting around a campfire every night for Lifetime after lifetime, <laughs> what are you gonna do? I mean, you go in sing. the bushes with one person, and you go in the bushes yeah, with another person. Or maybe person, everybody or maybe. just ends up fucking around the fire. You know, I mean, firelight makes people look good. There's mm. a reason oh, yeah. for that. Yeah. And nobody, nice and nobody looks bad in firelight. You know, <laughs> even I look tan in firelight. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, so, I wish I had a bit better answer to that question, but I, I don't. There are certainly theories that have been yeah. put forth that yeah. kink or the, the reason why we see so much kink in today's world is because we have so much repression of right. the standard uh, pathway for sexuality. And there does but seem to I be a know. correlation between, um, well, I have, I have a couple friends who are sex workers and they've told me that a surprisingly large percentage of their client base is Muslim mm. people, mm -hmm. who men who want to be um, forced 
to desecrate the Quran or to oh, eat wow. pork or you know to do something they're just forbidden to do because <laughs> yeah. it's got an erotic charge to it. Of course, I mean the forbidden, yeah. of course, right. has an erotic charge. And to so a lot the of more us. forbidden it is, the more erotic it becomes, I guess. For, then on, for a lot on of people. On one hand, you have Germany, for example, which doesn't have a lot of sexual oppression. Right. And they're some Good of the point. most kinkiest motherfuckers out there. Yeah. And if you watch some German kinky porn, that is mm. pretty much as kinky as it it's gets. It's pretty gross. And they're all wearing black <laughs> socks all the time and the mustaches. Yeah, hey, German to each porn. Their own. Yeah, I know. I, I know. I'm just saying it doesn't work for me. <laughs> Japanese porn is weird, too. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, but there is certainly a lot of repression in that culture. It's just, it's really interesting it's in which strange, ways it's, it's yeah. when it's gone. Because it's yeah. like totally unrepressed in some areas and then totally mm -hmm. locked down in others. And it's almost, from our perspective, it's like a random distribution. Right. It's very weird. <laughs> it's very and they have those penis festivals mm -hmm. where they parade around in the street with the giant penises mm -hmm. and all the you kids. Are, in India as well. Yeah. Oh, India. Well, there's another one. I mean, those temples in near mm -hmm. near Calcutta somewhere with, with all the group sex and the bestiality and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. India used to be a sexy place. Used to be a long time ago. Yeah. Things have gotten completely, yeah, have gone in the opposite so direction. So weird. Yeah. Yeah. But back to what you mentioned about the experiential difference between right. men and women. That's, right. That's something that is actually quite interesting and we don't have any data on mm. to what extent sex is or the desire to have casual sex or the outcomes that casual sex might have to what extent that is related to the fact that one is being penetrated and the other one is the penetrator you know it could be an interesting way to look at that because the reason I started thinking about this was I, I was um, talking about female copulatory vocalization mm -hmm. right and in Humans and quite a few other primates, uh, females make much more noise having sex than males do, and it seems to be correlated with promiscuity mm -hmm. um, because the females are there's information that's being conveyed to Lovers. other females, mm -hmm. right? Like, hey, I'm getting fucked, you know, come check it out, or <laughs> I'm getting fucked by this high status male, you better stay away because he'll, he, you know, he can be violent. And so, there it's sort of like either a come hither or stay away information being conveyed. Um, and somebody asked me after a, a talk uh, why I thought that that was happening, and I got into all this stuff about how this information is being conveyed. And then they said, well, what about in gay male couples? Is the, the guy who identifies as the bottom making more noise than the guy mm -hmm. who isn't? And I thought, I have no idea. That's a really interesting thing. And if, in fact, that is more common, is it because of the physiological experience mm -hmm. or is it because there's this sort of association right. with the female role in yeah, a way, yeah. you know? I don't know if there's any data on that, on Let's vocalization. Let's get into it. Yeah, yeah, I think That guy last someone... night who wants to be our assistant. Yeah, we should. <laughs> <laughs> Got a job for you, buddy. Yep. <laughs> get a directional yep. microphone and go very... to a gay club. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that wouldn't be too difficult to study, whether just basic questionnaires or right. something a little more creative, like going to a gay club and <laughs> measuring decibel levels. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think it would be almost impossible, though, to tease apart whether that's being done because of the experience itself or because of the socialization into this right. more feminine kind of role right. and that's what the more feminine the receptive partner is supposed to be doing right. what I do want to say regarding the 
experiential difference in terms of casual sex in particular between men and women in heterosexual relationships and how that may affect how much we benefit from casual sex versus how much we end up not benefiting or maybe even ha having our well-being harmed in some way is the very sad fact that women are much less likely to have an orgasm in a casual context than men are. And mm. there is that orgasm gap exists in romantic encounters as well, yeah. but it's much more pronounced in hookups. So for, for oh. example, one very large study of about 20,000 undergrads from 20 plus different universities in the US, they asked people, <clears throat> think of the most recent time, your most recent hookup that involved intercourse, and did you have an orgasm or not? 78% of the guys said, yes, I had an orgasm during that most recent intercourse involving hookup. Only 40%, 42% of the women said that they had an orgasm. So 40% almost difference in that regard, whereas it's about a 20% difference in the most recent romantic encounter. So I think what's very often happening in these heterosexual casual And that's because women's rates are higher, not men's are lower, with, with the romantic encounter. Yes, that's right. because women right. come at something like 60 or 70% uh, of their most recent romantic encounter at about 90. American undergraduate women. Yes. We have yes. to always specify. Absolutely. Because yes. world rates are different. And yeah. also age yeah. rates and are very later, different. And later, yeah. yeah. Uh, later age For women, groups. not for men so much, but for women. Yep, for yeah. women, definitely, that's the worst sex that they're having is right. when they're undergrads. Right. As they get older, they're going to start having Unless more satisfaction. Unless they get satisfying. married as undergrads. And then, you know. Yeah, to someone who's not a particularly good lover, then yeah. they're kind of screwed. But, or so, not. <laughs> or not screwed well, at least. <laughs> anyway, sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> so you I think what's very often oh, happening... Oh, the orgasm gap, yeah. Yeah, is that women are having these sexual encounters because the, it sounds like it would be fun, right. because it is a fun experience, and the exploration, the kind of connection, there might be an emotional connection or, or, or passion or intimacy that people want to get, and both men and women want to get passionate intimacy to some extent, not just the sexual pleasure, not just the orgasm, even in casual encounters. So there are m multiple reasons driving people into this, but then the women kind of end up not getting as much pleasure just pure sexual pleasure out of the experience than the men are getting. Mm. And so I think that probably drives some of the reason why women report fewer positive and more negative experiences right. in addition to more slut shaming or, or other things that might be driving that effect. And that is very unfortunate because that doesn't have to be that way, right. but it ends up being that way because you have, on one hand, you have men who are not as committed to providing a good sexual experience for their female partners when it's a casual context. When, when it's girlfriends or wives, they will at least say that they want to make their girlfriends and wives have an orgasm. They want to provide a good experience, but when it's a one-time thing or a, a random hookup, very often they'll be like, hey, I don't really give a fuck. It's mm. much more a, a, a selfish kind of experience for them. And then the women, on the other hand, are not really asking, not demanding mm -hmm. pleasure. Right. And so it ends up nobody really, nobody uh, looking after the women's yeah. pleasure. Yeah. yeah. And that's something that I, if, if I could change one thing about how we do casual sex today in America, that's what I would do. I would get men to be more giving and just more skilled in general because men very often they don't know mm. what they need to be doing. If yeah. they're learning about sex from porn in particular, right. they're not learning very useful skills about what 
real women might enjoy, yeah. and then get women to be a little more assertive in demanding sexual pleasure, in not letting the guys leave after they've come before providing some sort of pleasure to them, and whipping out their sex toys, their vibrators, mm -hmm. or using their hand to stimulate their clit if the guy is not doing that, and those kinds of things that we all can do. And we're not. Yeah, it's funny how, how women suffer from the like the double whammy of guys who aren't in, aren't concerned about providing pleasure and yet get insulted if the woman even pleasures herself. Yeah, right. You know, it's like, well, it's not enough. Like, well, obviously well, not, not dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very often yeah. I, I do hear that from a lot of women is that when they do bring out a vibrator or they use their hand to touch themselves, then the guys all of a sudden get their their, their egos kind of a little yeah. Uh, yeah. hurt. What, my magic dick didn't make you come? Come on. Well, clearly yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've given so many vibrators to women. <laughs> Well, yes. I mean, it's just like. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, I, I, uh, you know, when I was living in Spain, I used to take the Hitachi Magic Wands over because mm. they don't sell them in Europe. Really? Yeah, they don't make them for 220 current. Oh. It's incredible. <laughs> oh my God! They only make them for American that. current. So I'd have to take these things over and then buy a transformer mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and show the woman like, don't ever plug this into the wall. <laughs> it has to go yeah. in the transformer. You know, it's like a, you know, kind of takes the sexiness out of it. But then once she turned it on, it was everybody's happy. Now, luckily, they have the rechargeable ones, the portable. They're ones. not as strong. They're now. not as strong. The plug-ins. But are a lot really of women don't necessarily need sure. the super high intensity no. levels yeah. too. Some clits are a lot more sensitive than other clits. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's interesting. I was actually just on my podcast today. I had Jim yeah. Faust, who's been doing a lot of research on orgasms, actually mm. rat orgasms, the, the physiology and molecular biology, some to some extent of, of orgasms. And we were talking about this, and the reality is, external clitoral stimulation is required by a lot of women to have an orgasm. There's some new data that just came out on a nationally representative sample of adults, not my work, uh, by Debbie Herbenick from Indiana University mm. and the Kinsey Institute. And they found that about 36% of women said they needed external clitoral stimulation of some sort during intercourse in order to have an orgasm. And another 36% said they didn't like need it, need it, but it made the orgasm better mm. if they had external clitoral right. stimulation during vaginal penetration. Only about 18% of women said, I don't need at all external clitoral stimulation. The vaginal internal penetration is enough, and then a few more percentages uh, to make up to 100 of women who, were, who said that they don't come on a regular basis um, at all, at or, all. or very, very right. often. And so what you have, especially again in casual context, you have the 36% of women who absolutely need the external stimulation, but then you have the other 36% who maybe they don't need it every time, but it kind of helps. And when it's an unfamiliar partner, when it's a new partner, you kind of need more. Mm. It's more difficult, especially for women, it's, it, for men too. Because of but inhibition? For, there's inhibition, there's anxiety, there's, mm. you don't know the person, you don't know their body, they don't know your body. Mm. They, the circumstances might not be ideal. You might be having sex at a party, you know, in a bathroom or a conference room. A conference room. <laughs> Other people might be outside. You know, the, the, yeah. the circumstances might not be completely ideal. And yeah. so there are a lot of distractions happening yeah. that might make it more difficult to have an orgasm. And anything that you can do to contribute right. to make it easier, why not do it? Yes, right. if there's a vibrator. It's around. really unfortunate, too, because sex with a stranger or near stranger mm -hmm. is a very 
frequent uh, fantasy among women, mm -hmm. as I understand it. So there's like a, an opportunity to live a fantasy mm -hmm. and you're kind of, you know, fucking it up by not being attentive there. Unfortunately, yeah. Which is why yeah. for a lot of women, it seems like that fantasy is just a fantasy, or they want to keep it as a mm. fantasy as opposed to wanting to do it in real life. Right. Another study by the same Indiana University Kinsey uh, Institute team, Debbie Herbenick, uh, Brian Dodge, and so on, they very recently also published another paper looking at what kinds of national representative sample of American adults asking what kinds of uh, 50 different sexual behaviors, how appealing these are to people to do in mm. real life. And actually only about, if I remember correctly, about 12-ish percent of women said that sex with a stranger sounded somewhat appealing or very appealing. Really? Yeah. Mm. And surprisingly, the majority of men also said that it didn't sound very appealing. Really? Yes. If I remember correctly, the number mm. some, somewhere around 30 or 40 percent of men said that that was at least somewhat appealing, and 50. Depends plus. on the stranger too. I mean, well, of course. You know, they should phrase it. You know, sex with a really hot, hot stranger. Hot stranger. Yes, that would be a better phrasing. Yes. <laughs> no strings attached. <laughs> zero chance of pregnancy or STIs. Sex with a very hot no stranger. No social stigma. Who yeah. smells great mm -hmm. and, you know, isn't wearing the same clothes as yesterday. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Another set of researchers have done this study where um, they ask, you know, women and men ab about this very generic question, kind of, would you like to have sex with a, with a stranger? Would you say yes if a, if a stranger came up to you and yeah. proposed casual sex? And then they did some follow-up work of um, asking, would you say yes to casual sex proposal with Brad Pitt versus Donald Trump for the women? And something, I think it was Angelina Jolie and Roseanne Barr for the guys. Poor Roseanne. I know, mm -hmm. I know. But, so they were looking for someone who's very traditionally considered very attractive and traditionally considered very unattractive. And they found that the numbers of men who said yes uh, and no were, were very similar to this complete stranger without any description to the stranger that was the Angelina Jolie. Mm. So when men They're were thinking like stranger, hot, they were thinking a yeah, hot stranger yeah, proposing them. Right. But for women, the numbers were similar, the, the stranger numbers were similar to the Donald Trump numbers. Right. So when they were expecting a stranger coming up to them and proposing casual sex, they were imagining someone very unattractive. Which makes sense because if you think about uh, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm, I, I don't have experience of this, but my understanding is that most of the guys who would come up to a woman on the street and you know, come on to her are creeps. It definitely does carry. You're not going to have like a really creepiness. cool, nice guy who's going to be like, hey, baby, you know? <laughs> Depends on how they say it, but in some of these yeah. studies, yeah, the way it's worded, it kind of sounds like nobody who's not creepy would say something right. like that. Although. Right. I would say streets are a great place to meet people, especially streets like in places like New York where people walk. Mm. So be on the lookout. You can find some very hot people. Yeah, at least sure. saying hi and getting your number, if right. not saying outright, right. would you have sex with me tonight? Well, I remember there was a study, I think at the University of Florida, that's sort of one of these classic studies that's always cited where uh, they had attractive men and attractive women with clipboards who walked up to strangers and said, you know, would Hawaii. you be willing? Yeah. Hawaii, yeah. Yeah. The study that I was just talking about, Donald Trump, uh, that was basically taken sort from of, that yeah, experimental yeah. kind of uh, design. Yeah. 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 And it's always taken. it's always cited as like, see, women aren't interested in casual sex. And 
I always look at that and I'm like, what are you talking about? A guy walks up to you on a college campus and says, hey, would you come and have sex with me right yeah, now? What kind of guy that. is that? Nobody Who's going to do that? that? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's very ecologically invalid, what yeah, we would say. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, uh, how did, who, who are you? Where did you come? You came from Macedonia, <laughs> which is a place Macedonia. nobody's ever fucking heard of. Yes. I was near there once because I was in northern Greece, so I, oh, I yeah. know where Macedonia is. So, you were in the Greek Greek Hard, called Macedonia, Greek yeah, Macedonia, exactly. Yeah. Iona or Iona or Ionia yeah, or something no, like something that, like way that. up there. Mm-hmm. This is a long time ago. Yeah, so you were right there. I was right on the border. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, uh, I was born and raised in Macedonia. And what are your parents? Which What's at your the time was like? Yugoslavia when I was born. Oh, okay. It was Macedonia still, was part of this larger country so called Yugoslavia. So the whole Yugoslavia. war thing was when you were a kid, I guess. Yes, Yugoslavia started breaking up into many different pieces around 91, which would have made me 10. Mm, okay. So I was, yeah, born and raised in this socialist kind of country culture where nobody was poor, nobody was rich. Mm. My parents, I don't know, my dad was a professor of electrical engineering at mm-hmm. the university in, in the capital. My mom was an economist and... Intellectual family. Yeah, they were both college educated right. and um, I was given a lot of love for knowledge and science growing up there. And is, what's the native language? Macedonian. Really? That's the language of Macedonian? It's a Slavic language, so it falls in the same group as Russian, Polish, Mm. Serbian, Slovakian. Cyrillic alphabet? Cyrillic alphabet, yep. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's your mother tongue? That's my mother tongue, as well as Serbian, because my mom's Serbian or Uh, Montenegrin. And yes. And did the war affect you, or did you guys? Not a lot. We, Macedonia actually didn't have much of a war. We yeah. had a peaceful transitioning out of Yugoslavia for the most part. There right. was a bit of a civil war with the with the Albanian minority, the Muslim Albanian minority, but that didn't seem to turn into a big war. Nothing yeah. like Serbia, Bosnia, Croatia, and Bosnia yeah. and Kosovo, Kosovo, Kosovo had. Right. Yeah, so it was it was pretty easy. And then I left. So I grew up there. I went to. Uh, high school and college. Mm-hmm. I did my BA in psych at the local university there. And after lovely six months of internship in Berlin, which is probably my favorite city uh, after or aside from New York, I came to Cornell to do my PhD. And I've been in the US for 11 years. Why Cornell? That's where I got a really nice um, scholarship. Ah, good. Yeah, good and there was a professor. Obviously, I mean, there was a reason I, I applied to to Cornell. But there was a professor who was a pretty big name in sexual orientation research, which is what some of my research has been on, non heterosexuality, and I wanted to work with him, Rich Savin Williams. So. So as an undergrad, did you know you wanted to get into sexual research at some point, or were you just going into psychology to see what Initially, I went just into psychology, but I always knew I wanted to do a PhD. I knew that was my path. Uh It was also my way to the U.S. because that's where the best schools for research were. I really wanted to do research. And it crystallized over the few years of undergrad that it was going to be sex because mm. when I asked myself the question of, okay, what is this one topic that's going to keep my interest for the rest of my life professionally, obviously it had to be sexuality. What else is yeah, more fascinating than that? I came to that, that same crossroads. Right? Like, what can I write about and think about for the next five years without getting bored? Yeah. Yeah, so you were only thinking about five years. I was thinking the rest of my life, not well, just my, my yeah, PhD no, I was thinking career. dissertation mm. at that point, you know. But I was, I was actually already a year into a dissertation about something totally different. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, about um, 
a personality screening tool for physicians who were going to be facing a lot of existential stress. So oncologists oh, and, mm -hmm. and emergency care, mm -hmm. um, emergency uh, yeah. yeah, intensive care and all mm -hmm. that. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, I was interested in why some doctors burn out and some don't in those contexts. And then I, my idea was to, to do the screening research and then have this tool that could be licensed to um, medical schools mm -hmm. to screen, screen you know, so like, hey, mm -hmm. this your personality type isn't really good for oncology. You want to think about something else, and it, yeah, I still think it's. I always talk about mm -hmm. it on the podcast because I'm hoping someone will pick, pick it up, up and run it. with it. You know, because <laughs> I think it's an important um, mm -hmm. service and could save a lot of money and yep. could make somebody rich, and maybe they'll send me some of that money. Uh, but I realized after about a year of hanging out in oncology wards and working with oncologists that um, I would burn out. You'd burn out just yeah. doing the research. <laughs> yeah, just being around that much death and sadness, mm -hmm. and um, it's you know I don't have a good personality for that. And then yeah. I sort of stumbled into this uh, evolutionary uh, stuff, and and yeah, it seemed way more interesting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So how does the well, and also, I mean, I had an experience, my first three-way, I've talked about it on this podcast, was sort of a formative moment for me um, <laughs> because I had always sort of, it's almost like we were, we were talking about the sex with a stranger fantasy versus the reality. Mm -hmm. I My fantasy of what a three-way would be like was very porn-informed, I think. <laughs> of course. You know? <laughs> And but when it actually happened, there was this moment where it was with um, a buddy of mine and a woman, and um, I went over to like change the music and roll a joint, mm -hmm. and so I was sitting there sort of rolling this joint, and they're fucking you know two meters in front of me, and I had this this moment where I'm watching them, and I'm and I wasn't feeling turned on; I was feeling trusted. I was feeling touched that they were so comfortable in my presence that they were having this experience that was so intimate and beautiful and, and private mm -hmm. right, right in front, front of, of me. And they didn't give a damn that I was there. And I felt protective of them. And it was just this very um, sort of very strong and surprising sense of intimacy and kindness and friendship and you know, it was almost like a sappy, you know, <laughs> chick, chicklet kind of <laughs> version of a three-way. Yeah, but it was very, but it really struck me. And I thought about it a lot after that and how, and it really sort of gave birth in a way to this whole idea that I later expressed mm. in Sex at Dawn. This, I, this notion that human sexual evolution isn't this competitive um, you know, exploitative, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm going to give you meat because you fuck me and only me and those kids right, are mine right, right. and blah, all that shit. <laughs> it's more like, hey, we all love each other and we share everything, including sexual pleasure. That just suddenly made total sense to me. How old were you when that happened? Uh, how old was I? Mid-30s probably, okay. somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have one experience of that kind that kind of determined where I was going to go, but I had always been a very sexual person and you know, an outlier in many ways and certainly for my relatively conservative, patriarchal kind of world. And casual sex was something that I always loved, I always mm. enjoyed, and 
non-monogamous relationships were the kinds of relationships that always made sense to me. You know, monogamy never really made sense to me at all for my own personal life. And so these were topics that obviously I was uh, invested in personally or interested in personally. And also because I was seeing so much diversity around that. Mm. And I was seeing, I was loving and enjoying my casual sex experiences. This is in undergraduate. This is in high school and undergrad uh, and, right. and beyond that. And then I was seeing other people who weren't really enjoying those kinds of experiences. And so my question was, okay, what, what is going on? Why are some people really into this and other people are not? Why are some people harmed by this and other people really seem to benefit? And, and uh, I, I wanted to go in and understand that diversity, where it comes from, how it manifests, and how people navigate these expressions of sexuality that are kind of outside the norm. What, what was the cultural context in which, I mean, I don't know anything about Macedonian culture, is it like, it was, so, it was a communist, so apparently Socialist, there wasn't yeah. a lot of religious... Oh, there was no religion right. at all. However, right. it was still relatively patriarchal in, in the sense of, and traditional in the sense that long-term relationships and marriage were kind of the norm, uh, heterosexual for sure, there was no was, gay anything. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. it was pretty anti, uh, pretty homophobic, pretty anti-gay. The first gay organizations and gay rights didn't really start happening happening until after uh, the transition to democracy and uh, after the fall of the or or the disintegration of Yugoslavia. So there was the double standard with guys being the studs and women being the sluts mm. if they have a lot of sexual partners. So I was certainly being told by well-meaning adults and and peers that I shouldn't be having sex with many people and that I shouldn't be giving it up too soon because that I was going to build a reputation and nobody was going to marry me. I, also, yeah. apparently nobody was going to marry me because I had never learned how to cook. And that was another thing that, mm. so there were pretty traditional gender norms in the sense that even though everybody worked, it was socialism, we all had jobs. Men and women worked uh, at the same rate. There were mm. no stay-at-home moms. All everybody right. had a job. Right. Seven to three. It was not nine to five. It was seven to three. And, but after three, it was the women who came home and cooked and cleaned and ironed and right. did all those things, whereas the guys were watching TV and reading the newspaper. Right. And maybe if they were handy, they might do some man work around the house kind of thing. But the women were doing yeah. all, the, all the typical women's work. So you did right. have that. Right. So you were facing similar cultural constraints to mm -hmm. what Americans... Yes, were. minus the religion. At yeah. least we did not have the religious right, guilt right. around that. So there was there sex ed classes in school? There were a little bit. I think they were trying to introduce a little more when I was in school. It was a kind of a, it, it wasn't as repressed as it is here, but it wasn't necessarily talked about too much either. So mm. yeah, we didn't get amazing comprehensive sex ed or anything. Right, right. But we so, didn't quite get what, what kids get here, the abstinence only. Right. And that's actually fairly new. Yeah. Back in the 70s, right. you know, you didn't get comprehensive sex ed so either, but you didn't Reagan get this. All Reagan bullshit. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. So after the AIDS scare happened, mm. uh, things went in that direction in the U.S., and so you had the abstinence only, which I think it's better to not get any sex ed yeah. than to get that, because with that comes shame and guilt right. and misinformation that makes you do things you know, worse, that are right. worse for your sexual health and mental health and all right. that. Right. Yeah, so we didn't get that. So I looked at your website this morning, mm -hmm. and you do all sorts of stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> do all sorts of stuff. 
Um, do you want to talk about it? Like you've sure. got a DVD, or is it a, an online course? And you've got you've got a blog at Psychology Today, right? I used to blog for Psychology yeah, Today. I don't anymore. It's a pain in the ass. Yeah. I, I was one. I think I was the first blogger ever at Psychology oh, really? Today. I was there. <laughs> Er, blogger, yeah, because <laughs> my literary agent at the time knew the guy at Psychology Today who started the blog. This was, you know, uh -huh. seven years, mm -hmm. eight years ago, and so she arranged for me to get a blog there, and I did it for years. Mm -hmm. And but it's 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 like three. You have to do three every quarter Something to stay like current, yeah. and it's like I just can't. I mean, I can't get around to it. I it's, know. Yeah. I wrote quite a bit when I started writing. I wrote three or four pieces a month. Yeah. Yeah, but I stopped doing that. I actually started blogging for Forbes recently. So wow. Forbes decided that they wanted to have a sexuality and sexual health writer, or science mm. of sexuality and sexual health. So I've been writing for them. Okay. So people can read Good. more science of sex and sexual health there. And where, I, what's the, just so if they want to find Forbes, it, just at Forbes.com yeah, Forbes, and then Forbes, look up your name or something? Yes, yeah. Forbes.com, Jana, Z-H-A-N-A. Jana. And I obviously teach at NYU. I do other workshops and talks. I do, I, I, I've been doing more and more um, talks with medical professionals, kind of talking mm. about casual, educating them about casual sex, non-monogamy, uh, sexual, non-heterosexuality, kink, right. and how to be a little more inclusive in their approach to taking sexual histories and talking to patients and so on. So I do that. I am writing a book, actually, about casual sex. Oh, boy. Do you yes. have a working title? So, I have a working title. It's Hooking Up Healthy, but I don't know. We'll see if that sticks. Hmm. I'm actually talking to my agent right after this to talk about some possible um, titles. Hmm. So I, how far are you into the book? We just finished the proposal, and uh -huh. there, was a, there was a bit of a history there. I had a publisher that we ended up deciding that we weren't a very good fit for one another. Oh. So I ended up spending about two years with them writing, rewriting, re-re-rewriting oh. until I walked away from them. And oh. so we're kind of starting the process from scratch. Well, I'm glad to hear I'm not the only one who gets into those messes. No, that was my first <laughs> attempt. I mean, I, I've, I've published the book back home in Macedonia, but that was uh, published through a non-governmental organization, and the process is not nearly the, right. what it is here in the U.S., yeah. but this was my first attempt to <laughs> have a book in the U.S., and it did not go so well initially, but hopefully we'll have a better start. Yeah. After yeah. this, a second start. So, but I'm doing that. I am. Uh, what else? I have a couple of these digital products, like um, like webinars, basically that people can do. I, probably the one that you saw was on whether non-monogamy is right for you. Right, right. So, what? Uh, without like getting into proprietary information <laughs> here, are, are there? This is something that came up last night mm -hmm. in the panel. Like, do you think there are personality types that can be identified where it's like, because. I, I mean, mm -hmm. you're shaking your head affirmatively, yes. <laughs> uh, and I agree with you, obviously, but um, I think it's such an important thing for people to talk about mm -hmm. early in a relationship. It's mm -hmm. right up there with, do you want to have kids? Yes. You know, those sorts of I agree. very important conversations. I agree. I think there's a lot of talk about, you know, everybody's monogamous or everybody's non-monogamous, and I think that's a completely wrong way of approaching this. Right. Different things are going to work for different people. Different relationship structures are going to work for different people. At different times in their lives, times, too. That's what's partners, tricky. Right? So mm. I might get together with you and want, want a perfectly monogamous relationship, and then we that break up. That would be a mistake. 
yes, for both of us. <laughs> and then I get into a relationship with yeah. someone else, and I think that with them, I want to have yeah. a non-monogamy. So that happens to people all the time. Yeah. So getting into relationships with this default that it's going to be monogamous, by default, that's ridiculous. I think people should be having these conversations with their partners, but also with themselves to start with. And mm. Whether you think you're more cut out for monogamy or not, should be a conversation that people should have with themselves, kind yeah. of weighing the pros and cons the way they see them. And I definitely think that there are certain personality types that are better suited to benefit from non-monogamy and others that are probably going to find that it's more trouble than it's worth. You know, last night at the panel we were talking about these sorts of issues mm -hmm. and one thing that didn't come up that I thought about later is I wonder, because we all sort of agreed that, you know, as we were talking about earlier too, that there are people who are more sort of novelty driven mm -hmm. and they get bored more quickly. And so the people tend to travel more, mm -hmm. you know, they're more, um, they might be reading three books at a time, right. you know, they're, they're those sorts mm -hmm. of people and their people are going to be more comfortable with and more driven toward uh, novelty in relationships as well. But I wonder if that's the same, if there's a consistency um, among those people with also being psychologically tolerant and um, autonomous enough to tolerate the non-monogamy of their partner. Mm. In other words, I might be driven mm -hmm. toward novelty, but I can't handle mm -hmm. that you're fucking someone else, you know? Mm -hmm. There, Or is that part of the same structure? Are people driven toward novelty going to be more understanding I don't of other people? I don't think so that necessarily those two go hand in hand. I think those are two mm. separate things. How mm. driven by novelty you are and then how capable you are in, with handling your right. partner's So that's desire. tough because we were saying thing, know yeah. yourself and if yourself mm -hmm. is... I want it, but I don't want her to have mm -hmm. it. You're kind Which of a dick, a, dude. It's a double standard that you have, right? It's yeah. a hypocritical sort of standard, but it's one that a lot of people operate based on. Right. And that, that's why I hear that more from men than from women. Women seem to tend to think, you know, if I have a one standard for me, I'm going to use the same standard for my partner as well. But uh, I've... I've heard that from men a lot that I want to have access to multiple partners, but I'm not okay with my wife or girlfriend doing that. Therefore, I'm going to get in a relationship that is supposed to be monogamous. A lie, yeah. And then cheat yeah. on the side, right? Hmm. On the other hand, I don't think that you necessarily have to have the exact same standard mm -hmm. for both people. I know couples who've been together pretty happily so for decades where one partner had a lot of freedom and a lot of casual partners or poly partners or, or so on and the other partner partner was completely monogamous yeah but if that's genuinely what both people want and right. they are okay with that then i don't think that that is by default doomed to fail right any more or less well, than it, other types yeah of i mean it's not hypocritical if it's happening because the other person wants what they right. want Right. So we both or have what want. we want, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so there's no uh, imposing of my desires on on her, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, but I think that's a completely different thing of mm. uh, from how much you want access to multiple partners or how much yeah. you're driven by by novelty. And I think to a lot, a lot, uh, to a great extent, that level of possessiveness and failure to accept the fact that your partner might want the same thing that you want, I think that is cultural to, to a great extent. That yeah. 
especially when it comes to men and how they're supposed to be viewing their their female partners, that there's this sense of possession and that you're less of a man if mm. your wife is fucking somebody else. You're a cuck, which you're has cuck. become this exactly. this insult. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know some some guys who are that get off on their girlfriends having sex with other people. Oh yeah, and I that's love actually them. quite common, and I think it's yeah. becoming more and more common in terms of at least people admitting to it. But it's a real shame that it's become this insult, especially online, I see it mm -hmm. used a lot, just in the last few years. And it's really fucked up because it's like, wait a minute, this is a guy who, if you're cool, is gonna be happy with you having sex with mm -hmm. his wife, and you're gonna <laughs> insult this guy? I mean, like, you, this, it makes no sense. Yeah, I mean, you, you want more of this. You, this is, I mean, this is what's so confusing about male sexuality in these these pathological cultures. Like the things that men are doing are making it harder for them to get laid. Yeah. The more they insult women, the more they make them feel unsafe. The more that's mm -hmm. what's making. I mean, this Harvey Weinstein thing yep. is like, look, Harvey Weinstein's a monster probably because. He has really pathological relationships with women. I don't know anything about his mother or that. Sure. <laughs> but certainly he wasn't getting laid when he was a teenager. He was horny as hell, mm -hmm. as all teenage boys are. He got really angry. He got really motivated. I'm going to make a shit ton of money. I'm going to get super powerful. Mm -hmm. And then these bitches will like me. And then he did it. And he treats them like mm -hmm. shit because he never learned how to deal with women. Right, but his problem is not the fact that he wanted to fuck a lot of women. That in and of itself is not a problem. No. It's how you go about right. getting well, all that. And he lived in a culture where getting right. women was nearly impossible for someone like him. Right, right. So if he, were, if he were in a culture, I mean, th this is why bonobos aren't killing each other. Because <laughs> they're getting laid all the time, you know? <laughs> anyway. Right. Um, wait, there was, there was something. But, you know, I, I don't want to leave this, this, this bicameral vision of, of jealousy and novelty mm -hmm. seeking because... I, th I think this is really interesting, the, the idea that part of it is innate, this novelty, mm. uh, appetite for novelty, and yet the other part, the tolerance for your partner having the same experiences that you're interested in, um, we're saying it's a separate um, character mm -hmm. trait or something. But it seems to me that one of them is accessible to learning and the other isn't. No, not well, not necessarily. Because I don't think you can you can teach someone not to be into novelty. I think they are or they aren't. But I think you can learn to to be. Well, we were talking about compersion last night, right? right? I that one guy who is a friend of yours, mm -hmm. I think, said I've learned compersion. Oh, that's my ex-husband. Oh, you <laughs> <laughs> learned compersion with me. <laughs> <laughs> but but he still got divorced. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. He seemed like a nice guy. But oh, he, yeah, he's he, a great guy. I didn't know he was your ex-husband. <laughs> he said he lived with you or something. Mm -hmm. oh, okay, so you live with your ex-husband. Yes. Oh, good for we you. We like each other. Yeah, I yeah. love my ex-wife. Yeah. I yeah. just saw her two weeks ago. I, I mm -hmm. love her to death, yeah. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. I've, we've had a very lovely divorce, the best divorce I could possibly imagine. <laughs> That's great. That's, yeah, I yeah mean, things just ran their course. There was yeah. nothing bad that happened. Right. We don't hate each other. Right. We, nobody did anything bad to the other person. It's just one of those things where we both decided that we wanted to move on. 
that's, from partnership. You know, that's, you know, no, no, all joking aside, that's a real accomplishment to navigate uh, separation mm. without anesthetizing yourself with blame and hate mm -hmm. and all that negativity. I think it's really sad that that's how we've conceptualized divorce and separation breakups in our society, that every time a relationship end, it was a failed relationship. Right. Every time a relationship end, somebody did something bad to the other person, someone's to blame. And then you retell the story as if this was a complete waste of time and yeah. it was awful. Like, really? I often you say it's like burning down every house you move, you move out of. Yeah. Why? Just move out. You don't have to burn it down. You can come back and visit. Hopefully it was good while you lived there. Yeah. There were good things. There was a reason why you were with that person. Right. And once it stopped being good, then you stop being with that person. But right. that doesn't negate all the good things that you had. Yeah. And so I think we'll, we all would collectively benefit from having a bit more understanding for how relationships happen, their their lifetime, their life course, and that just because they ended doesn't make them a failed relationship. I think of yeah. my seven-year relationship with my husband or ex-husband, I think of it as a very successful, loving, perfect, excellent relationship. Do you know that, that anecdote about Margaret Mead? Um, well, you know Which who Margaret one? Mead yeah, is, yeah, of course. Uh, uh, for people who don't, she was an anthropologist who sort of, you know, laid the groundwork for what you and I both do. And she wrote Coming of Age in Samoa, where one of the first uh, books arguing that female sexuality is as strong and free when allowed to be as male sexuality. Anyway, in the 20s, she, she had been married three times, I think. Mm -hmm. And in a press conference, someone said to her, well, you know, why should we listen to your opinions about sex and relationships? You've had three failed marriages. And she said, excuse me, I've been married to three wonderful men, each of whom is like a brother to me. None of those were failure. Yes, Fuck. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, right on, yeah, woman. That's, and that's like in the 20s, you know? She was ahead of her she time. She was tough, yeah, yeah. yeah. But so I, you were, yeah, good, you were going somewhere. No, I want to go back to what you were saying about, and I don't know, maybe, maybe you can cut this out, but um, when you were saying men often tend to go against their own best interest in this regard. Right. I actually wrote a piece in Playboy a couple of years ago that was looking at that same thing in the ca in the context of casual sex. The more guys have casual sex themselves, the more likely they are to have a double standard and insult and slut shame the women really? who are having a lot of casual sex. Yeah, wow. oddly enough. At least among college students and sort of young men, maybe once oh, they get a little older. Frat and, bros. Yeah, yeah. The more they're associated with frats and varsity athletics mm. in colleges, the more likely they are to have those kinds of mm. views, which is really funny because they're the guys who want to get laid the most, and yet you're slut-shaming the women who are going to give you access to that thing. It doesn't, doesn't really make much sense. They're kind of shooting I, themselves in the foot. And I wonder to what extent a lot of that is covering up uh, homoerotic uh, impulses. A, a lot of that frat shit, man, there's so much weird homoerotic stuff going on there. And then we're all going to go fuck after we all like suck each other's dicks and, <laughs> you know, spank each other. We're all going to go fuck some babes. Like, yeah, really? I dude? don't know how much of that is homoeroticism, but I do think it's this sense of masculinity, fragile masculinity, and the need to constantly defend. 
yeah. the sense of manhood. Right. Because manhood in our culture is something that can very easily be taken away from you. You have to earn it every step of the way. Just because you have a penis or you look like a guy, doesn't. it's not enough to be considered right. a proper man. Yeah. There are all these things that you have to do you and say and cock. think. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> do you know about Koro? The, 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 I'm really into these diseases that only exist within certain cultures. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's called Koro, K-O-R-O, is the belief that witches will take away your penis. Oh. And it, it, it exists, <laughs> and people get killed over this. Like, guys believe wow. their penis is disappearing because some witch cast a spell on them. Wow. And this exists in, um, I think it's Nigeria and um, Chinese populations of Malaysia and Indonesia. Hmm. It's, yeah. So when you say your masculinity yeah. can mm-hmm. be taken away, I'm imagining, like, ah, penis apparently it's can be taken away. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, um, and, and the language around stuff like performance anxiety. Mm. I, this idea of performance always blows my mind. Like, <laughs> I'm not dancing fucking ballet here. There's no performance. But I, you think know, who's performing? People do think of it as a performance. Very often, they feel like they are being monitored and evaluated. Oh, and actually, God. yeah, I, I get that. I think a little more than maybe more uh, most women do because. You know, I'm a sexual researcher, uh, scientist. So guys are professor. like, "Oh, you're watching. You're you're taking notes. No, yeah, yeah, you're you're grading me. Right. They will say those things. Plus, you're a psychologist. Oh my God, you're gonna read my thoughts. Yeah, but they do feel that. <laughs> they feel the pressure yeah. to be really good mm. for this person who kind of knows more or right. is likely to evaluate them at the at, uh, hold them at, to a higher standard. See, as an award-winning porn star, I'm beyond <laughs> any of that sort of inhibition. <laughs> yes, you overcome all performance anxiety. That's why you don't even grasp the con- well, concept. Well, I mean, it's really. I, I mean, for me, sex has always been. Uh, uh, an opportunity to get out of the brain space, mm. you know, which is ironic because you and I both spend a lot of time thinking and writing right. about sex. And so it's kind of antithetical in a way mm. because the actual experience of sex for me is is highly anti-intellectual in a way. Mm. I mean, it's it's like primitive and it's you know, there's um, uh, I don't know, it's it's. You know, maybe it goes back to that fire, and you know, there, there's, it's like an escape from civilization. Mm-hmm. It's an escape from all this learned. I mean, it can be very. Um, uh, what's the word? It's like it can be very um, not intellectual, though. It's it's like brainy, but not intellectual. I don't know if I'm making any sense. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I mean, the brain is very erotic. So sure. eroticism involves like thoughts and narratives and fantasies and communication, like you know, saying mm-hmm. things and you know, but not, not in a conscious sort of waking state way. I right. guess I don't right. know. It doesn't make sense. I don't know. For me, it, it's a mix. Sometimes. Those guys are right. I am. You are monitoring. Kind of monitoring, like yeah. oh, especially if they're they're doing something that clearly isn't working, and I'm like, okay, this is clearly yeah. not working. Right. We need to educate now, and right. I do end do up. You flip educating. into like, hey, buddy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Like, yeah. slow down, or right. you know, this maybe you should try this, or sometimes I, I'll even put a stop to the experience if, if they need a lot of work. I'm yeah. Like, okay, let's have a little chat first. <laughs> Uh, but when it's good, then absolutely yeah. you get to that state of yeah. not really paying attention to to these kinds of things yeah. and and enjoying it. Uh, wait, yeah. There was the other thing that we didn't get to. Um, uh, what's that? 
the other well, the, thing. No, no, no. <laughs> the one other thing. No, that we started and didn't. Uh, you were saying this. How much of that is socialized versus not socialized, or one is socialized? The ability to learn compersion, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, compersion, by the way, is taking pleasure in your partner's pleasure, even if it's with someone else. Kind of the opposite of jealousy, which right. is you see or think of your partner with someone, and then you experience all these negative emotions. Right. And I don't think that that's purely, and the possessiveness and the jealousy, they kind of go hand in hand to some extent. I don't think those are completely socialized because jealousy is a very real reaction. That's, I was saying that last time, last night, because people very often feel like they shouldn't be feeling jealousy, that if they feel jealousy, they're somehow less evolved emotionally. But jealousy is a very normal, natural response to the very real possibility of you losing your attachment figure, someone who is very close and dear to you. And so, so there is some level of evolutionary basis for feeling jealousy. And I think people differ, just like they differ in how high their sex drive or need for novelty is, they differ on how dispositionally jealous they are, just sort of you know, starting point uh, jealousy. But we, on top of that, we have layered a lot of socialization in terms of when jealousy is appropriate, how much jealousy is appropriate, what ways of dealing with jealousy are appropriate, right? In some cultures you have jealousy is good enough to kill your partner and their lover. In other cultures or communities, jealousy is nothing more than go and exercise or do yoga or meditate and deal with your own jealousy, right? So all of those things are, are socialized. Mm. And I think that's probably more amenable to socialization than how how much need for novelty you have or how mm. much how high your sex drive is yeah but those probably can have some level of uh, susceptibility to what is being valued in a society yeah. right we have things that we tend to take for granted that differ between societies like the collectivist cultures of uh, East Asia versus more individualistic cultures here. And there's certain things like how assertive people are. We tend to think of those things as pretty, to some extent, biological, you know, how shy versus assertive you are, like a temperamental thing that you're born with. But then you have these massive cultural differences in that regard because one culture is much more encouraging of assertiveness and mm -hmm. a whole you know, these other cultures are much less encouraging or, if anything, repressive of that kind of assertiveness. So I think, to some extent, you could think of novelty and high sex drive being, to some extent, socialized more or less in, in different cultures. Yeah, that makes sense. And also, I think background stress levels oh God, allow yeah. things to flourish or shut them mm -hmm. down, you know, mm -hmm. and how much time you have, how much energy you have. Mm -hmm. If you're raising, you know, a single mother raising two little kids by yourself, even if you're novelty driven, who the hell has yeah, time for it, right, right? Exactly. And also you feel vulnerable and, you know, it's what we were saying earlier about Denmark and mm -hmm. countries that, or societies that support women allow more of that sort of mm -hmm. thing it's to a, flourish. It's a luxury. Yeah. You need to yeah. Be. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Because it's so yeah. central to uh, a decent life, <laughs> you know, a life worth living. Um, before we wrap up, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how long we have this room, but um, um, oh, yeah. I, I want to mention your podcast. 
Yes. Yeah, we haven't talked about that. You have a new podcast. That's true. I just started a podcast. We recorded the fourth episode just before this, and it's called The Science of Sex Podcast. Very simple mm -hmm. and descriptive of what it is. We basically go into some of the scientific research around sexuality and talk to the researchers who do the research on various topics and then talk about some other things. I have a co-host called Joe Partavilla who's, a, who's been involved with radio for a long time and he's kind of the, the, the guy who keeps this academic a little in check and uh, doesn't let me go off the keeps academic real. rails too good. far. <laughs> we all need a yeah. Joe in our lives. Yes, Joe's yeah. great. But yes, you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher, wherever people find podcasts. I hope download, listen, cool. give us some feedback. All yeah, right. Science of Sex podcast. That's good. Zana. Jana. 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 Yes. All right. Jana Vrangalova. Thank you. Thank you. Interesting woman, huh? Uh, you can learn more about Jana's research and uh, her public presentations and her podcast and all the rest of it at drjana.com. Her name is spelled Z-H-A-N-A. -A. So drjana.com. Check her out and uh, yeah, come see us at South by Southwest if you're there. If you live somewhere along the route that we're going and uh, you want to get together, send me an email. You can do that through the website uh, in the subject heading, right? Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, Louisiana, whatever. Um, and if you're along the route, maybe we can stop and grab a beer. Maybe. I can tweet about it and see if other people in your area want to come around. Uh, it's always cool to meet with you when, when that's possible. Can't make any promises. As I, as I said, the schedule is very fluid and we're sort of all over the place. But if you want to have a podcaster in your driveway, <laughs> maybe, maybe that'll happen. I'm coming that way. All right. Thanks for listening. And uh, again, listen, listen to this. That's the silence that comes when there are no damn commercials. Thanks for supporting the podcast. This is Carsey Blanton again playing Smoke Alarm because you know you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett and Justin. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. And what's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what
to the ground. 